Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, good morning. A very pleasant good morning to you. We are live here this morning. It is the 14th of November. This is Patrick Timpone, OneRadioNetwork.com. We broadcast live from the beautiful Hill Country in the Texas uh, Hill Country, and just uh, about an hour or so outside of Austin. And um, we've got a lot of hills and things like that between us and Austin, so we're protected from the <laughs> the woke world. I love them. Well, uh, good to have you on the show here. If you uh, uh, care to participate, you can uh, call 888-663-6386. Email is patrick at oneradionetwork.com. We have a great week for you. Uh, we're going to be talking with um, um, Andrew Kaufman, uh, there is no germ. He's one of the there is no germ guys and show me the virus. And he'll be here tomorrow. Also a lady about uh, um, some really interesting ways, quick ways to lose fats and using fat to do that. Yeah, I know it's pretty much different from what they tell you. And then also later on this morning, we're going to talk to a Ph.D. Uh, cosmologist, quantum physicist guy about the electric universe and how all these little planets, and maybe they're not exactly the way we think they are, but they're all connected electrically, and he, that's his whole, his whole thing in life, is what he talks about, so that'll be fun. So that's later on, around noon. Lawrence Freeman is with us. Mr. Freeman is on the East Coast. He is a political economic analyst, and mainly focusing on Africa, has been focusing on uh, that uh, amazing country, Africa. Uh, and the economic development and the policies for over 30 years. He teaches, he lectures. His website is Lawrence Freeman Africa and the, and the world.com. It's a long one, but it's a blog and you can read about it. Uh, I just pulled up a, um, um, a map of Africa because, I mean, when's the last time you and I even looked at it to see what's going on down there, right? It's just, it's just another, literally another world. So let's join Mr. Freeman, and he's got some very curious things to say about what's going on with a thing called COP27, right? COP27 going on right now in Cairo. Mr. Freeman, good morning. Nice to have you here. Yeah, good morning. It's a chilly morning over here on the East Coast. Oh, on the East Coast. That's what you guys do during the winter, don't you? Chilly? Yeah. Chilly morning. So you've been involved with this kind of work politics and for a long time, right? You're, you're a young, you're a young one, and and uh, were you a Democrat, Republican, Independent? What were you back then at the beginning, and how'd you get involved in politics? Well, I've been born into a family of Democrats, and uh, I was a uh, always leaning towards Democrat as a let's put it this way: the party of Franklin Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy. Mm. I've had massive disagreements with Democrat Party over recent years. Uh, I was raised in an interesting period where I was very politically conscious at an early age in high school. And in the late 1960s, if some of you are as old as I am, I'm going on 72, you may remember there was a little bit of activity going on in the United States then in terms of political movements. Oh, yeah. I remember. I remember. So as part of, I guess you would call social conscience or concern about the world, I thought about Africa a little bit. And I said, well, why is people dying in Africa when there's such a a capability of uh, agriculture and fertility of the soil? And then I got away from it and got involved in 
politics very aggressively for many, many years. And then, I guess in the late 1980s, I began to look at Africa again. So it was a little bit of a time period. And I started writing about it and speaking about it and I attracted people. And I started traveling first to Nigeria in 1994. And I probably made about two dozen visits wow. to Africa wow. in the last uh, 20 some odd years. And most recently, uh, last two years, uh, I've been to uh, Nigeria, Sudan many times, Nigeria many, many times, uh, Mali, Chad, and recently a lot of trips to Ethiopia. And I've been battling the U.S. government in Ethiopia <coughs> because it was an attempt at regime change a couple of years ago. And I took the government on. And in fact, when the government was telling Americans to not go to Ethiopia in last November and to stay home or travel out of the country and the U.S. Embassy would buy you a ticket because the country is about to be invaded by the TFPLF army. I flew to Ethiopia <laughs> and arrived there and started tweeting and immediately I became a, a little bit of a folk hero in the media and other areas of the country. And then I've been working on this for a couple of years. So I have a lot of experience. I've been economic planning for countries like Cote d'Ivoire and, and Sudan, Nigeria, and uh, active in the United States. So this has become more and more my life every year, every month. And I'm going to keep it up as long as I can. Fascinating. And we, 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 we get this idea just from, you know, movies and whatever, and our limited knowledge, uh, Mr. Freeman, of, of Africa as being um, very poverty-stricken, right? I mean, throughout the whole, yes. whole continent, right? I mean, yes. so yes. we know that most politicians are politicians, right? So it must be the same thing in all of these different, are they called countries like Zambia? And, yeah. Oh, they're, they're countries within the continent of Africa, correct? 54. 54 of them, pretty close. 54 countries, and the Africa continent, is, you never see it portrayed accurately on a map, mm -hmm. but it's um, about, it's about uh, three and a half times the size of continental United States. Wow. You can fit China, Europe, India, and the United States in, in Africa. you got about 1.5 plus billion people. And there is massive poverty. There's no question about it. Over 500 million people live in what's called extreme poverty of less than $2 a day. Wow. My, my view uh, from looking at this for a long time is there's absolutely no reason for anybody to die from hunger or food. All the land, all the capabilities are there. I, can, I believe I can eliminate hunger and poverty using principles of Alexander Hamilton, hmm. establishing credit for infrastructure. There's no electricity on the continent. That's the biggest killer. It's not the environment. It's the lack of electricity, the lack of railroads, the lack of trains, the lack of refrigeration and food. These things could have been corrected 50, 60 years ago when the countries first started becoming independent from colonialism. And no one has ever really uh, dealt with them, except for one Western leader, which was John F. Kennedy, uh, stuck his, uh, his political, uh, activity, uh, political arm into Africa and worked with Kwame Nkrumah, huh. the leader of the liberation movement, to develop an electric uh, smelting industrial complex in Ghana. But outside of John F. Kennedy, no one has done anything and no one has showed any concern. And uh, it's a crime because it doesn't have to happen. So can we conjecture from that that 
what we might call the elite globalists who think they run the world, the Davos crowd, and these people have had their fingers in Africa a very, very long time to because they want their, am I just reaching here? They want their stuff, their, their natural resources, and have for a long time? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I say that Africa has suffered, unlike any other group of countries, uh, a half a millennium of oppression. You had 400 years of slavery from about 18, uh, about 1440, when the first slaves were taken out of Lagos, Nigeria, to about eight, 1800s. Then you had the Bismarck Conference uh, in, uh, in Germany, which uh, divided up the world among the Europeans. And that lasted until the 1960s when you had, quote, the liberation war, uh, movements. But even in the liberation movements, they never changed the economic policies mm. or cut off the economic tentacles of the city of London and Wall Street. So, and Kissinger made this, by the way, very clear in um, a document he wrote in the 17, uh, 1970s called National Security Memorandum 200. And he said, the West needs the in, uh, raw materials of Africa, and therefore we have to prevent them from using them, that is, prevent them from becoming industrialized, and reduce their population growth. So this has been an orientation. Yes, the West wants those resources. In the case of Ethiopia, they want the trade route around the east coast corner of Horn of Africa, and they want to control the political players and the political power. And anytime an independent African leader comes up and rises up to lead, uh, he's either coup or assassinated or regime changed. So yes, the, wow. the Western elites, the geopolitical fanatics, have had their hand in Africa uh, for five hundred years. How many? Five hundred years. Yeah, yeah, half a millennium. Whoa, from the fourteen hundreds. Five hundred years. Over five hundred, really. And just go through some of the natural resources they have been lusting after in art today. Um, well, of course. I mean, there are various estimates. Uh, I mean, if you took just the value, the way commodities are valued today, you have uh, several hundred trillion dollars of resources in the ground. You have large deposits of oil. You have large deposits of coal, mm. large deposits of gas. Then you have the precious metals, diamonds, gold. Uh, then you have the uh, various metals that are used for uh, electronics, cobalt, and other f uh, metals that are used in our computers. What they phone. call the rare earth minerals, right, sir? Yeah. Right, that's right. That's the right, rare earth mineral. So you have uh, a plethora of minerals under the ground wow. of the African continent. And uh, Cecil Rhodes, who is a real, I won't say the words on a public uh, platform, <laughs> but he was an imperialist pink shall we is that acceptable to use that word sure. and he and he said it in his uh, one of his memoirs he said we are going to eliminate the natives above the ground so we can get the resources under the ground he said that publicly cecil rose yeah huh. yeah i mean he conquered one place after another uh trying to get as much material wealth and he and he said it openly it's all for the british empire ah. i'm going to extend the british empire to Africa, and he wanted to connect Egypt all the way down to South Africa in one continuous British colony, and he almost, and he almost succeeded. 
Uh, and uh, in his will, I mean, he set up the Rhodes Scholarship, which is somewhat infamous right now. Right. And, and he said, we are dedicated to recapturing our colonies, including the United States. <laughs> they want, they still yeah. are upset of losing the United States. <laughs> That's right. They still haven't got over that one. So, no, it's, well, it's what, a tough one. What, what famous people do we know that are Rhodes Scholars? Oh, they're all. Uh, they're all? Clinton? Oh, uh, Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. The President Clinton, uh, Susan Rice, who is supposed to be a great knowledgeable person in Africa. You have many senators, congressmen, uh, and they all uh, went to the two years of study in uh, in London, uh, and they became indoctrinated with the British philosophy, or I should say British ideology. Uh, Kissinger wrote a memo, I guess, in the mid-1980s. And he said, I kept the British government better informed than I did the United States when I was Secretary of State. So there's a whole anglophile grouping in the United States, and the Rhodes Scholarship Program uh, is very much part of that. So these people have then been controlling these individual countries. When did they start to get together and have their own countries? What year did you say? Well, he... If the Lib- I mean, the, there were a few countries in the 1950s. You had the, what I call, the, it was called by the British, the waves, the, the winds of change. Yes. Words, they could no longer control through colonial military policy these countries. So they had to let them become, quote, liberated. Hmm. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah started in Ghana in about, I think, 1957. Sudan was 1956, but then... Uh, the liberation movement really took off in the 60s. Mm-hmm. 30 countries liberated in the 60s. And then the last one was uh, South Africa in 1994. Zimbabwe was only liberated in 1980, so that's only two generations ago. The interesting thing, uh, which stands out to any intelligent person, is uh, Ethiopia. They were never colonized. Ethiopia, one of the reasons I really like Ethiopia is their mindset. They defeated the Italian army in northern Ethiopia, Adwa, A-D-W-A, on March 1st, 1896. They defeated the Italian army on the battlefield. Whoa. They were never colonized. They were invaded by Mussolini in 40-35, but they were never colonized. And because of this, they really stand out as a unique group of people. And of course, Europe went crazy. The Italian prime minister resigned immediately. Headlines across Europe show that uh, they were in a state of of rage and despair. That the the blacks, the Hottentots, the savages, as they called them, defeated a modern European army. They couldn't get over it. And the British almost got defeated in 1899 in the Boers' War. Uh, which they had to deploy a half a million troops to defeat the Boers, which were Dutch farmers. If the Boer War, if the British had been defeated in the Boer War following the Adwar victory, uh, arguably Africa would have been different and the world might have been different. But colonialism continued. And in the 1960s, you had some real independent leaders Patricia Lumumba was removed from office three months after he took office and assassinated. Kwame Nkrumah was couped. 
the first leadership of Nigeria was couped in 1996 and assassinated. Wow. And the story goes on. Wow. And they tried to do the same thing to the prime minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, in uh, the, uh, two years ago. They, they used this attack by the uh, rebel insurgents, the TPLF, to try to launch a regime change against him, which failed. They launched many regime change attempts against um, Robin Mugabe. You probably know him. Sure. Zimbabwe. So they they want to control. Control for them is probably more important than simply money or wealth. And if you look at the Horn of Africa, you have the Indian Ocean going into the Gulf of Eden, the Red Sea up to the Suez Canal, one of the most important trade routes in the world. And when Abi came in, Abiy Ackman came in 2018, he immediately formed an alliance with Eritrea, and they've been at war for years, and visited Somalia. So if those three countries united on the African leaders, then the Western geopolitical crowd doesn't control the Horn of Africa. And that's why the West gave support to the TPLF against the government. TPLF is a kind of a terrorist organization that they it's use. Tigrayan, a Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. It's a ethno-nationalist military uh, that uh, was formed out of Tigray, one of the regions of Ethiopia. Mm. And they declared war against the government, and the West did nothing to stop them. Just for a little backdrop, uh, the whole South Africa thing in England, was that the Boers Wars that England won, and that's how they got down there? Well, the, the original settlers in Africa were the Dutch East India Company in the 1650s. Mm, They were physically removed by the British crowd, the British East India Company. But you had Dutch there, you had French there, you had Germans there, of course you had the Africans, the Zulus and others there. And the British took over the place, I would say firmly by 1800. And and then of course the 1800s, even though they were not uh, the dominant force, they controlled the country. And then what happened is the, the, uh, the Dutch who were farmers, peasants, who were called Boers, they couldn't stand being ruled by the British. Mm. So in the 1830s, they left and formed their own states. And the British uh, engineered a, uh, a war, a couple of wars, they were called the Boer Wars. The last one was 1899 to 1902. And the British carried out, they were losing to 55,000 Boers held off five hundred thousand wow troops. how did they do that they they were the experts just kicking ass huh they were just kicking it <laughs> asymmetric guerrilla warfare and the wow. only way the British succeeded wow is they burned down all the boer farms they took all of the children and, and wives put them in concentration camps this is prior to nazi germany they put over a hundred thousand camps 20 to thirty thousand died they put blacks in camps Another 30,000 died, and eventually they won in 1802. Uh, 1902. But it was really a touch and go there for a while, whether they were going to succeed or not. Fascinating. So then these people would go in similar to an Iran, Iraq, or Libya, and just CIA and other people, and they just kill the guy or put in their own person, like in Ukraine. They just keep doing the same model, and they've been doing it in Africa for a long, long time. Well, that would be, yes, in the later stage of 1906. Don't forget, in the, in the 18 and 1900s, the British just moved in militarily. Sure, they moved the whole thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, but then don't forget, uh, and this is one of the interesting things that I keep having discussions with my African friends, that South Africa, the, the uh, elites were actually allowed the uh, Mandela to lead a black popular movement because by the late 1980s, they, were, they realized they could not control the country anymore uh, through the Africana white rule. So they themselves met uh, the elites in, in Britain and they, off, they established a outreach to Africanas because they were looking for plan B. So plan B was they would have to give up political control and Mandela was an exceptional person and so the, the black Africans took over political power in 1994 when he became president. But the agreement was that the financial control would not be touched. So the city of London, hmm. through, the, through the people at Oppenheimer, Rio Tio, Zinc, Anglo Gold, etc., they still controlled the wealth in the ground of the mines they took hundreds of years ago. And so there's a big economic problem in South Africa, even though they had a politically successful revolution. But that's typical of the elites. They have a plan B, they have a plan C. Hmm. They, as long as they can try to maintain control, they'll go accept some concessions and then move on and try to regroup. And why would Mandela agree to that? Just to have something? No, rather than nothing? Well, there was a legitimate reason, of course, to have the majority of the country was black Africans. Mm-hmm. It was not I mean, the whites were an extreme minority, and then, of course, the Indians were a large portion. So to have the black people control the country uh, was politically, morally justified, and they did have demands for development of the country, but they weren't strong enough at that point to get the economic concessions uh, that would have been an economic revolution, and it, it might have been messier, it might have been costly, and they may not have succeeded. So all of this praise and glory in the, that the United States supposedly gave to Mandela as being this hero and all that, deep down, he was just a figurehead in a sense. No, no. He, was a, he was a good person. Sure. And he was yeah. honorable. Uh, I think that some people justifiably uh, put him and praised him. But the elites, which are really not even all in the United States, and a lot of them in, in, in Europe and especially Britain, right. they they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing, right? Because if they didn't find a good person, it wouldn't have worked. And because he was a good person and had morality and he had inner strength to withstand what they did to him, he was the right person. And the political revolution was, was a real revolution in politics. But it didn't go to the next step, which uh, is still being debated now in, in South Africa. You have groups who are demanding that the land owned by these uh, cartels out of the city of London be turned over to back to the Africans. So this is a very hot issue on who owns what land in South Africa even today, many, many years later. And we read there's a lot of action with China going down there, get buying everything they can, correct? Well, at China has a very close probably the closest working relationship on the continent with South Africa. Also, Russia, you know, just last week, hmm. uh, the, the, the Brits and the Americans went nuts because uh, South Africa conducted naval exercises jointly with Russia and China. China has played a very useful role. I have a whole page on my website hmm. on China's work in Africa. Not perfect, 
but they have supplied credit for infrastructure. And to me, this is the essential. Mm. And this has actually led to economic growth because infrastructure will always lead to economic growth yes. properly applied. If you were to remove uh, China from Africa over the last 20 years, you would, there's no country, no institution who would have filled the gap. So poverty and death and hunger would be worse today than without China. Huh. Are you and suggesting the, then that as much as they want some of their stuff, they're, they're not, they're being a more um, um, ben, uh, benefactors, or they're actually playing a little more well, fair, wanting their stuff well, and well, investing? There's nothing wrong with a country using its natural resources to promote its growth. And the, the idea that, that, that they can't sovereignly decide to use their resource, to sell the resource sure. for collateral on long-term loans that build railroads, that right. build energy plants, that builds hospitals, that builds schools, that build harbors, that build airports. Why can't they? And the, the unlike the West, which has only been extractive, and this is the funny part, that's all the West has done since Take. the 1960s. Right. I, I visited the first oil pump that the Royal Dutch Shell put in Nigeria in 1956. It's not used anymore. But that's what the, the oil companies did, the gas companies did. Everybody took, looted Africa. Now the West says, oh, China's taking their resources. <laughs> but they're giving something in return mm. that expands the wealth of the country and leads to an increase in productivity. Why is that bad? And there's been no, contrary to all the propaganda, mm. there's no seizure of any project any asset of any African country by the Chinese for failure to pay on time. No. It has never happened, and it won't because the Chinese negotiate. No. Uh, Lawrence Friedman is with us. One of the reasons we became aware of him is through our friend Matthew Arrett because uh, of an article that he wrote, and it's all about the uh, uh, something that's going on today through the 18th, and it's in uh, Cairo, I believe, and it's called no. COP27, and it's all about this man-made global warming climate change. And you write that it's going to be a real disaster if this thing for Africa. Would you stay there? Let me take a quick break. And then we're going to come back and do that. Because, I mean, I mean, who knows about this stuff? I mean, God bless Matthew Eric. I, I wouldn't even know about it if he wouldn't have sent me the article. We've got, you know, we got crazies of our own here in this country and globalists and God knows what in elections and and then, you know, how can you even understand what's going on? So this is great stuff. If you're on hold, I'm going to get to you and ask you and ask a question. My name is Patrick Timpone. This is OneRadioNetwork.com. Use the email. Isn't this fascinating? Patrick, OneRadioNetwork.com. One of the, uh, the most interesting things that we've been selling for, gosh, 15 years here promoting is the Relax Far Infrared Sauna. And this is a portable sauna. Most of them out there today, and I'll show you a picture of it, uh, most of them out there today are these wooden saunas. They run four, five, six, ten thousand $10,000, whatever, and you bust out a, a bathroom wall. And they're pretty cool because you lie down in them. Many of them are low EMFs, and they're good. But they don't get the heat and the sweat that you get in one of these. I don't care how much you pay. They just don't. I've been in them. They're kind of cool, they're nice, they're beautiful, and you can lay down with a towel and take a picture, show your relatives and go on TikTok. But if you really want to sweat, if you really want to detox, if you really want to rock and roll your body, 
you can get a portable one here. You see the picture. Your head is sticking out. Uh, incredibly low EMFs. There's no radio frequencies at all, few magnetic energy. You will sweat. They get very hot. And you put a timer on if you're likely to fall asleep like I do a lot when I'm talking to God and in this thing. And uh, there's been evidence to prove unequivocally that uh, you can um, test the amount of heavy metals and toxicity and stuff like that comes out of the urine, right? It comes out of the urine. Uh, before you do the sauna, they say, okay, we got so much mercury, so much this coming out, so much that coming out, blah, blah, blah. And then you can do a sauna and then measure it again. And there's actually more yuck stuff or heavy metals and toxins that are coming out of the um, urine after the sauna. So not only are we sweating, but then we're also uh, uh, having uh, toxic uh, materials exit through the urine. So you do this every day and it's most likely you're never going to experience a detox reaction, which we call the flu. Here's Brian Clemens uh, talking about the sauna. I'm doing it more now because it's getting cold and people are wanting them, so get on board. Brian Clement, who heads up the Hippocrates Institute in Florida, talked about saunas here. Elkie writes in for Brian Clements. Would Brian give us some tips on what supplements we would need to take if we do saunas several times a week to replenish lost minerals from sweating. Well, Dr. Rao, who you had on, is a colleague and a friend. We do often conferences together in Europe, and I agree. We have saunas here. I take a sauna, so you know this, no matter where I travel in the world, 365 days a year. I think it's mandatory. Really? 87%, listen closely, 87% more heavy metals and chemicals come out in an infrared. Well, no wonder we feel better when we take these saunas. We have the Relax Far. On special every day. Thank you. I'll take over from here, Patrick. We have an everyday special. And that is simply uh, $1,295. And you can go on. These things sell, you know, on, on their website. I think they're about, um, oh, I think they're about um, $1,400, $1,500. These are $2,000 uh, units for sure. They allow us to sell them a little bit uh, for less money just because they do, and we would rather sell more and make less commission. 1295 delivered in the lower 48. For those of you who live in Petaluma, um, that doesn't mean Alaska or Hawaii. We ship them all over the world. Here, just email me, patrick at oneradionetwork.com, patrick at oneradionetwork.com. Tell me where you live, what city, what country. We ship them all over the world, and I'll give you the best price possible. Uh, just email me, and I will hook you up. Previously, with Mr. Oxygen, Ed McCabe, we asked him this. Does sulfur, does it bring oxygen to the cells as well? Yes, that's what oxygen, sulfur are just... That's what it does. Kissing cousins, they love each other. The sulfur takes the oxygen. Now, in the beginning, we would have people stuff themselves with oxygen, either ozone or transport for oxygen in there, in not, not the burnt-out, dead MSM that sells millions and millions of dollars worth in the health food stores and other places all over the world. It's worthless. You have to get the real organic. So don't ever shop price at MSM because you're just going to get garbage. You need the organic super sulfur. Real, pure, living sulfur. Organic sulfur. That's what we sell right here. Three prices, depending on where you live. If you'd like more than four pounds, email me, Patrick, 
at OneRadioNetwork.com. We'll give you a discount. Order anytime, front page, click OneRadioNetwork.com. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Okay, we are back with Lawrence Freeman. He's an economic, economic an analyst, a political uh, researcher, and advise, well, and he lectures and writes a lot about Africa. He's been studying Africa for over 30 years. You can hear he's quite aware of what's going on. His, um, I want to just show you his little place here where you can check out his work. It is called Lawrence Freeman, Africa and the world.com. It's your blogs and uh, what you write about uh, ongoing, Mr. Freeman, right? Ongoing. Yeah. Right. Cool. So uh, before we get to this COP27, so is it probably the dumb question of the day, but so is it similar to the model that these people have been using around the country, Central America, Chile, whatever, Iraq, you know, they go in and they put their dude in and give them money and and that's how it goes, right? Until the people catch on. Well, the way regime change or sometimes called color revolution work, you take a legitimate grievance, let's say poverty, right. uh, lack of employment, which are real problems yeah. for African countries, <laughs> and you use that uh, to create a, uh, a movement that removes the leader. Uh, you take the case of Robert Mugabe. I was very much involved in Zimbabwe for a number of years. Oh, yeah. And... Um, he became, uh, he was a very uh, interesting leader who freed uh, Zimbabwe from the British in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, where otherwise, I mean, blacks were just killed all the time by British and Rhodesian citizens who lived there. So he freed the country and there was an agreement uh, called the Lancaster House, where the British, with American support, I think this was uh, maybe Margaret Thatcher, I'm not sure, 1984, and they uh, agreed to buy, pay for the land that was owned by the whites. The white population owned 70% of the quality land in Zimbabwe. Wow. And 15 million Zimbabweans, black, owned almost nothing. I think there was, you're talking about several thousand whites owning 70% of the best land. And so the agreement was the people, the, the whites would be paid some price from the governments, uh, primarily British, and the land would be then turned over to black Zimbabwe. Hmm. Well, it didn't happen. So Robin Mugabe did it on his own. He took over the land and gave it to the black Zimbabweans, and the West went nuts. (laughs) Now, he did it in a clumsy way, but nevertheless, there was nothing morally wrong with what he did because the land was stolen from them. Hmm. And at that point, he had to go. And so they launched these various efforts and sometimes you could have a three, uh, quote, human rights activists or three British reporters or other people from the National Endowment Democracy or the Republican International Republican Institute. And they could be two or three people turning out articles, advising key rebels, training them in various uh, tactics to, to overthrow the government, to build demonstrations. And because people are suffering, these things could work. And uh, this is what they try to do uh, all the time. And, and sometimes it's successful, and sometimes uh, they're not. In some cases, they out now kill the person. That's the rare 
that was done in in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Nigeria. Hmm. In most cases, they will try to remove them hmm. through building a quote movement against the government because the government has failed to provide for the people. And as I say, there's always an element of legitimacy in the demands. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. But it's not a solution to overthrow a country, no. to overthrow a government. A big picture in general, um, do the people understand what's going on when these coups happen? Do they, do, they, do, they, do they know? Or without media, I mean, how would you know what's going on? Well, that there's, look, they have, there is a permanent problem, which I've met with certain presidents and leaders on this question. Let's take Nigeria, which I know very well. The, if you have, in Nigeria has a population of about 220 million people, largest populated country in Africa, that is projected to overtake the population of the United States in about 25 years. Hmm. There's reported to be 90 million people living in poverty and extreme poverty. Wow. So if you, if you, and it's a very young population. So if you have this many people, uh, unemployed and poor, you're basically, it's a time bomb and it's just ticking because to, to win over, to, to, to have a durable peace, to have durable progress, you have to give every citizen the opportunity to have a dignified, productive life, a job, a paycheck. Yeah. And that there is increasing signs when you don't do that, that it's not that hard to mobilize large sections of the population because they're angry. Yeah. I, I, I see it there when, I was, uh, when I'm there all the time. I see this kind of rage and anger building up because they don't, the young people don't see a future. So if you take away hope, then you're, you, and you have desperate people, you can manipulate desperate people to do stupid things. Yes, sir. Yeah. And that is not the hardest thing. Now, the big problem for the world is that Africa is projected to have 2.4 billion people by 2050. So that's less than 30 years. Uh, One billion people of Africa will be 35 years and younger. If we, so Africa will be the center of political, political activity and commerce for the planet. If we don't do what I'm saying and build infrastructure massively and increase economic growth massively, then Africa could go in the wrong direction. If we take sane, thoughtful policies that I'm suggesting, then Africa can be a gift to the world because all the more people is more more ideas for development. Yes. But either way, it's up to us and the Africans to decide for good or for bad what's going to happen. But Africa will be the center of the world. Yeah. Uh, let's take this call and then we'll get into this uh, this uh, um, thing going on COP27, in yeah, COP, COP27 in Nigeria. Thanks for holding. Good uh, good, good morning. Who's this? On the phone? No. They must have hung up. Sorry. Waited so long. Okay, so COP27 began a few days ago, going on through the 18th in Cairo. What is this thing? What, what, what's going on down there? Well, it started on November 6th, and it's not going on in Cairo. It's going on in their deluxe. Oh, sorry tourist center, uh, Sheikh al-Sharam. And they uh, started on the 6th or go for, I guess, 12 days. Mm-hmm. The whole purpose of this is to brainwash. Well, it's beyond brainwash. It's complete fraud. <laughs> because we're trying to convince the Africans 
that they cannot use their own sovereign resources for energy production, that is primarily uh, coal, oil, and especially gas. They say, you can't do that because you will increase the CO2 allegedly, which will cause catastrophe and the world will come to an end. However, we will continue to use it and we always have used it for the development of our economies. And the irony is, I mean, it's an evil irony, but it is an irony. While they're trying to convince African leaders not to develop the resources, especially gas, because of the Ukraine-Russian conflict, these same Europeans all, all over Africa trying to get coal, oil, and gas from Africa to Europe. So on one level, it's just complete cynicism. And on the other level, they don't want African nations to be industrialized. Without energy, Hmm. you can't have an industrialized economy. And as Alexander Hamilton and others knew, without a manufacturing industrialized economy, your population will always be subject to manipulation. Hmm. If the African countries industrialize, the whole world changes, resource control changes, energy changes. But to do that, you need abundant energy. I would promote nuclear energy as far as I could. But you need abundant energy. Yes. And Africa, for a billion plus people in sub-Saharan Africa, they have less than 100,000 megawatts. So there's nothing. Wow. There's nothing there. And it's even more disproportional because South Africa has 40% of the energy of sub-Saharan Africa. And this is, you'll never have an economy, an economic manufacturing-based economy, an agriculturally-based economy that's, uh, that's efficient if you don't have energy. Right now, Africa imports $35 billion of food, which is absolutely no reason to, and, in, and it has to import almost all its manufactured goods because it never had a manufacturing sector. This is a death sentence. And it's meant to actually reduce the population yes. of Africa. Yeah. So now that part they don't they keep that hidden. Yeah, they don't tell you about that part. But so this whole COP twenty seven is a bunch of countries getting together and it's all about telling Africa they've got to go green and and we want your stuff but you can't use it, but we want I mean how do they get away with that? I mean how do they Well they're also they also don't get successfully brainwashing Western and American culture to believe that if the uh, global warming if we, that if human beings use produce CO2 anthropogenic that this is going to destroy the planet now you have I mean you have a majority of young people believe this the baby boomers believe it Europe is insane sure. I mean, Germany shut down the nuclear energy plant a few years ago Germany is probably the only place more insane than America <laughs> in terms of how it's brainwashed itself so they're selling it in the West because they're also wouldn't mind a reduction of population in the West as well. Mm. And they're not in favor of industrialization anyway. So they don't, the West will su- will also suffer. But in Africa, it's an immediate life and death question. Now, if you, the articles I, that I put in my website on this thing, uh, quoting from Mo Ibrahim, who's a, a Sudanese British citizen, a philanthropist, and he's saying this is wrong. This is you're killing us. We have 600 million people without electricity. We have 900 million people who do not use gas or electric for cooking. They use biomass, cow dung, and you're telling us we can't use our energy. 
You have the South African energy minister, Montashi, saying this is colonialism. You have the President Bahari of Nigeria. So the Africans are not going to accept this. They're they want it people. Now, the West, again, the fraud is the fraud is so thick it's hard to get through. The West is now saying we're going to give a trillion dollars plus to help Africans transition into quote renewables and help them deal with the environment. The West is never going to come up with a trillion dollars. They're now talking about reforming the IMF and World Bank, which they're never going to do either. The West has known since 1960 liberation movements that they could help Africa with long-term credit, lines of credit for infrastructure, especially energy and rail. And they have refused again and again to do it. So they have deliberately blocked development or helping Africa develop. And now they're trying to buy them off. But they have been talking now for many, many years about giving Africa $100 billion to transition. The money has never been raised. They're not going to raise a trillion dollars. It's a joke. It's a fraud. But it's the African countries are going to say no. They may agree at the conference. But when they go back to the countries, they know if they don't produce energy, they're going to be right. thrown out of all. And even if the IMF prints, I don't know, IMF can print a hundred trillion, um, they can print a trillion dollars on their computer. They can loan it to Africa. And if they don't pay them back, they'll take their gold. That happens all the time. And what do you, I mean, what if, well, I guess you could build stuff with a trillion dollars worth of dollars, even though they're just no backing paper. Right? It's, just, it's crazy. Well, it's a, it could be legitimate credit extension. I'm working with a group of Africans to build a, create an Africa Infrastructure Development Bank. Yes, we, there you go. We got a cap, capital base. We would lend out a percentage for only infrastructure projects based on uh, scientific analysis. There you go. Them. That's what it's about, right? Local bank. Right. The, yeah. the IMF and World Bank will not do this. They won't even give them electronically a trillion dollars. They won't even give them digital, digital dollars? Yeah, they're not going to do this. They, there's no way they're going to do this. What, they're gonna, what they want to do Jeez. is they want to make sure the African countries don't develop. So if they're going to give them a trillion dollars, what, to build wind farms and solar plants, then you can't build an economy. Solar can light bulbs and it can charge cell phones. Windmills are useless because they don't even produce what it costs to pr produce them. But this is not reliable energy. You need 24-7 abundant, accessible national grids yes. of energy. Yes, sir. You can have a, you know, a few solar cells out in the, in the rural area and people can get together. You can't... Well, I, when I go to Africa, I go to Nigeria frequently. I have some of the very old friends there. We've known each other. And they live modest means. One's a former ambassador. And they cannot run their air conditioning or freezers except when they're on the national grid. They, they have their own generator. They have big battery packs, but you need a certain power to run industry. And uh, Nigeria is just horrible in production of industry. Everybody has a generator for their home. So they're paying more than you and I are paying for our energy bills. And they're getting very little for it. But you can't run an industrialized economy on that. No. And throughout the entire continent, you're saying, and others have said, they have enough gas and oil and coal 
to do all the goods they need if they could just figure it out and do it. Just do it. Right. Yeah. Their currencies and their economies have been kept weak. So they need a they need a, a, a line of credit from the helpfully from outside of Africa, where there's no African currency that's tradable internationally. Right. Once you leave the country with that currency, I have it all up in my my office, all the different currencies. All the different, you can't do anything can't do it. Yeah. You leave that country. But so you need a line of credit. Now, this is not rocket science. This Hamilton devised it. It's been used again and again. The Chinese figured it out, whether through the United States or on their own. If you provide 10, 15 year, two to three interest rate line of credit for a viable infrastructure project, you will increase the productivity and profitability of the economy. Look, China became the leader, is the leader in high speed rail. That's one and uh, maybe second in nuclear energy. How do you think they got 750 million people out of poverty? It wasn't through Chinese dictatorship. They did something right on their economic policy that the West is too stupid to figure out or too stupid to recapture. Because mm. we were the we were the leaders in this on that Hamilton and Washington, Lincoln, John Quincy Adams, Franklin Roosevelt. We knew how to do these. How to do it? Well. well but I mean, as far as currency, couldn't it be possible if you had all the countries in Africa get together, form one kind of an EU kind of currency, right? Used all over Africa and back it by resources. So you got some juice and make it digital. You could do it digital. And if they got, they could, they could pull that off and actually have real money. I mean, it's real. It's a dollar. The dollar is no more real than that. Couldn't they? Well, it's, you're thinking in the right direction. I mean, you do have the African Union, which is the only uh, continent-wide organization. They have plans and programs. They're very vague. They're very long-term. Although they recently were successful in concluding this peace in uh, Ethiopia. So that's uh, they get credit for that. Mm-hmm. But they form now the Africa uh, Economic Free Trade Agreement, which is going to break down all of the borders and uh, Cool. Currency They're going to trade back and forth. Yeah. Continent. Hmm. Because the continent only trains, this will uh, this will be interesting statistics for your viewers, only 13% of African trade is inside Africa. 85% is outside the continent. They sell, so excuse not, me, so they sell 85% of their stuff outside? The trade. For dollars? Now, for dollars? Well, for some hard currency, dollars, pounds, yen. Whatever they yeah. get, yeah. But they're, they're not, the, so there's plans to build, there should have been built already, a high-speed rail network that crisscrosses in a checkerboard fashion, east, west, north, south. Mm-hmm. I, I have this on my blog. And that would connect the capitals, the populated cities, the ports. This is what they need. And there is discussion of an African uh, currency. But we, we have to get the African leaders together with friends and allies around the world. And we have to say, what are the key infrastructure projects that we have to figure out how to fund to pull our all our African nations out of poverty and stop put them on the road to economic growth? Uh, right now, we're not there yet. The Chinese have been a huge help. Um, the Turkish government built the railroad in Tanzania. The Russians have been involved. India has been involved. Japan, none of them on the scale of China. The West doesn't build anything. We say, 
We don't build, but we bring you democracy. Yeah, great. That's, right. that's what they right. need is democracy. <laughs> wow. So, so this... So the conference, in my view... The conference, and what's going on in this conference? What are they doing? Well, they have leaders from all over the world. Right. Africa, Biden's going down there, right? Yeah. Biden was already there. Okay. I, I mean, it, it, they're so brainwashed, they're so feeble in their own thinking. Biden, Biden's promoting the $250 million. $250 million doesn't build anything. <laughs> but somehow these guys think that these this is going to help them. And if we force the Africans to go to solar, what, what they would have to do is they would have to cover large areas of their uh, land with, with solar cells <laughs> when they really need to be planting trees and building industry. They don't need more solar on the ground. So this is all of it is, none of it is going to work and none of it is real. But they're trying to convince the Africans to accept this. We'll give you the promise of a trillion dollars, you say, by 2030 or more than a trillion if you would just do this. However, we are still going to buy your coal, gas, and oil <laughs> because we have an immediate shortage. But we don't want you to do it because it'll be global warming, right? So there's nothing, the only thing that can come out of the conference is if they succeed in convincing or brainwashing more and more people to go in this direction. Of course, the whole argument is a fraud yes, sir. to begin to with. To begin with. Yeah. Right, because uh, CO2 makes up 3.5% uh, what's called greenhouse gases. And the anthropogenic contribution to that is 0.9. So that takes you down to 0.29. And then Africa contributes between 1% and 3% of anthropogenic mm-hmm. gases. So Africa may be contributing 1 to 1 thousandth of a percent, <laughs> if, if you accept the theory. At if you expect a theory, anyway. And there are so many, uh, what I believe are will critical thinkers in this form of this whole Green New Deal thing. And and it, it appears that this whole Davos Great Reset, it's all about the Green New Deal, isn't it? This is, this is what it's about, to convince people that go solar and wind and all of this, and then they just want to control the energy, don't they? Well, because because they can't provide it, right? There's no evidence. It's one high, one level higher than what you're saying, oh. which is they actually in the in the developing sector and in the developing sector, they want to deindustrialize and prevent industrialization in the developing sector, deindustrialize in the advanced sector, and they know it will lead to an increased death rate. Any physical economy. Oh, so it's a whole like eugenics myself. thing because if you don't industrialize, you're going to die. It's a basically reincarnation on a higher level than Thomas Malthus' population essays of the 1700s. Wow. When he, he established this absolutely erroneous theory that populations increase geometrically and uh, food production increases arithmetically, and he, he, which is not true. There's no proof of that whatsoever, but he asserted it, and that became the rallying cry of the, of the British East India Company and their allies to reduce the population. He said, let's start with the poor people first and let's build the streets narrower. Let's not vaccinate people. Let's not deal with disease. Bertrand Russell came up with the same argument. He said a good plague every few generations will wipe out the unnecessary people. This has been a constant theme for hundreds of years. It's, a, it's part of the environmentalist movement because Huxley 
was a leading eugenicist, and he, be, I think, was the leader of the World Wildlife Fund when it first was formed. So the real intent behind the whole thing is actually much more evil than even controlling resources. Much more evil. These, these people are, are psychopaths. Yes. And it's hard for the average African, the average American, mm. to understand yeah. that mindset. But the facts are clear. If you don't lead, don't give countries energy, if you don't let them industrialize, people will die. This is not, you don't have to be a genius to know that. So if you carry out policy A, deny energy, and policy B, deny manufacturing industrialization, then C will result. Death rate will go up. Hmm. So, but the control of the globalist, Mr. Uh, Freeman, on one level, on the people that run these individual countries is so tight, nothing's happening or has happened for many years, right? Well, you've had some progress. Yeah. First, uh, I mean, the Kenyans built with Chinese support the Standard Gauge Railway, which connected the port of Mombasa to Nairobi. Uh, the, the Turkish government helped Tanzania build a railway from their port to the interior. You have plans to build an east-west railroad starting on the east coast. Uh, Ethiopia, uh, with Chinese support and others, built the first electric railroad in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, from the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, to the port in Djibouti, which is a, was a breakthrough. The Ethiopians also have raised among themselves, without going to any international body, $5 billion to build the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, GERD, hmm. which is, uh, has, has had three, the reservoir has had three fillings. It's producing a limited amount of electricity. In three to four years, it could produce 6,000 megawatts, which would be the biggest injection of energy on the continent. Uh, Egypt has a deal with Rostrom from the Russians to build nuclear plants. They're building them in Egypt now. Wow. Uh, South Africa, which has the only two nuclear power plants, is either going to sign a contract with Russia or China for uh, several thousand megawatts of nuclear power. India is involved in the nuclear power question. So there is progress. It's just not enough. I want to stop people from dying in Africa from food, lack of food, from poverty, from disease. Yeah. And we can do it, but we have to have a massive military-like mobilization. And the United States will not support any of this. All they keep talking about is trying to make a deal. It's like the TV show, make a deal with, try to get the private sector to make deals with African countries. But the private sector will never build the infrastructure because it's a large expense over time. Public credit, like Roosevelt had, like Hamilton had, this can build infrastructure. Private sector can play a good role in building, but then they don't have the credit mechanism creation. They can't create credit. Governments can't create credit. So the West, we would say, would be the EU and the uh, um, United States. Yeah. They're and the ones the, that are really the problems, right? They're the one of the problems. Well, they could. They created this problem through 500 years of policy, and they have not changed the policy. They won't help. Why won't they even do what China is doing? And China's not doing enough, in my view, but it's doing more than anyone else. 
I'll give you an example. I've been working on a project for over 20 years called TransAqua. Yeah, I read about that, yeah. To bring water from the Congo River Basin, which is a super wet basin, to the Chad Basin, which is a super dry basin. And along the way, we would increase navigation with a canal, produce electricity, expand farming, et cetera. It's a perfectly workable solution, but it would change about 12 countries between the two basins and transform the continent. Hmm. Um, the Italians are the only ones who have supported this effort. The West won't even mention those words, won't even talk about it. Wow. One, I mean, there's one group in the military that invited me many years ago to a private seminar to discuss it. Outside of that, there's no interest whatsoever. Now, why isn't there any interest in building a, a workable solution? All we need is $3 million to start the feasibility study. And the West will throw away hundreds of millions of dollars, but won't put any money towards anything that's related to development. And uh, the West knows it's losing its influence. The United States is losing its influence in Africa right now. And that's why uh, Secretary Stan Blinken made a trip to Sub-Saharan Africa in the first week and second week of August. And the same thing with the um, ambassador to UN, Thomas Greenfield went to Sub-Saharan Africa, same time period, because they're losing their control. Countries are politely but diplomatically telling them, you can't tell us what to do anymore. Yeah, good for them. It's small, it's, it's starting now, it's still not enough because this, to reverse the destruction of Africa, to produce the food and electricity necessary, we need, we do need trillions of dollars of real credit investment. We need six, my estimate is we need 1600 gigawatts of power to bring Africa up to our level. Why should they be having less quality of life material quality of life than you and I have. There is no reason for it. And I, I, one of the articles you said there, 80, is it 80 million people that cook on, on ways that are just very damaging to their health, right? 900 million. 900 million, yeah. And charcoal, which is very toxic, right? Charcoal. Well, what they do is something that uh, we did primitively a couple thousands of years ago. Wow. It's more AD, which is called charcoaling, which is you take a bunch of trees, cut them down, put them in like a pyramid shape, you cover them loosely with dirt, and you burn them, hmm. and you create the change in the carbon, and that wood becomes a, like a, a primitive charcoal, not the charcoal we're familiar with. Yes. And that's what it's used for cooking. So they're cutting down their trees. I was in Mali, and they, I watched it. They're just cutting down their trees to, to have this charcoaling because there's no gas and electricity lines that run into their homes for cooking. And they're using cow dung. So they're actually increasing pollution. The environmentalists are so stupid that they don't realize they're actually destroying the environment by not advocating massive electricity hmm. production. And when you cut down green stuff, trees and that, that affects the weather too. And that can affect the rainfall. It does. We just That's know. Trans yeah. Transpiration which is the movement of moisture up into the atmosphere and then it's released, oh. is very much related to trees. And of course, trees love CO2. Now, the best thing to do is to plant trees, but trees need water. Mm -hmm. That means you just have, to have energy to move the water, to transport the water is energy. So everything is going to come down to energy, energy, energy. 
and it has to be powerful energy, abundant energy, and reliable energy, which solar or wind don't fit. It's not going to so happen. No. So the very, the very weak, the very fact that they're imposing backward technologies, windmills, yeah. this is really backward, it shows you the intent, the evil intent. Because if they were serious, yeah. if they were honest, if they were serious, they say, okay, yeah. the best renewable in the world is nuclear energy. So we're going to help you build a thousand plants across the continent. Well, Mr. Freeman, doesn't this really cement an argument that's been said for a long time that these elite globalists, the Davos crowd, whatever you want to call them, who knows what who they are, that they've got a tight control over you know a lot of countries in Germany. I mean, in the EU and the United States, they just do right. Right. They're just but, running the show. They're running the show. I, but that's all changing. Is it? Because of, yes, because the rules-based international order, which is an absurd title they give themselves. <laughs> anyway, the rules-based international order is no longer in control. Mm. And therefore, we actually have basis for optimism because China will become the number one economic power before the end of this decade, or number two. Now. Yeah, of course. Russia whatever you think about the conflict, they've already made clear they're not following the rules-based order. They're doing what's necessary to protect their country. That's right. So the rules-based order is coming apart. The key question is, is do we have enough political foresight, muscle, and intelligence to bring in a new paradigm, a paradigm where countries work together in the common interest of developing humankind, which has to be a paradigm based on development and economic growth. That's the potential in front of us. And even though it looks like it's hard to get there, the current system is collapsing. And the financial system it's is collapsed. collapsing. Yeah. Yeah. So the rules-based order is no longer in charge. They think they are, but they're not. They're not. Therefore, but we have to put something positive in its place. But I mean, you can't even get anybody in the White House and Congress that are thinking clearly. I mean, where do you go from here? It's almost like you need a revolution or something, you know? Right. You need a revolution of ideas hmm. and political will. Uh, the Chinese have an interesting saying. I don't know how it works in Chinese, but it's equivalent of every crisis is an opportunity. Yes. So we have to go through, we don't have to, but we are going through one of the most severe crisis collapse of the West we've ever seen, the culture the thinking, yeah. the media, this has the potential to produce a change. Now, where those leaders come from, I agree with you. I've looked over the Republican Democrat Party. I don't see any leaders. But that doesn't mean we, we can't, the crisis will not produce one or produce more than one. And that's what we have to fight for. We have to fight for thinking in a new way. A paradigm of development is the only way forward as um Pope Paul, John, um, as Pope Paul VI said in uh, 1967, uh, development is the new name for peace. Without mm -hmm. development, there will be no peace. There will only be death and destruction and war, even worse than the war we're seeing today. Here's an email from George. He's in Omaha, Nebraska. That's a great place. He said, I'm really enjoying your guest. Does he think that there is weather modification by these elites in Africa to stop rain and things like this any evidence of that no, i mean really not that i'm aware of mm -hmm. I mean, you have the congo river basin is the second largest basin in the world after the amazon 
I mean, it's sometimes called the lungs of Africa wow. because it's so thick, it absorbs CO2, and as we were discussing earlier, it increases transpiration. You have a lot of deserts in other parts of the country. Now, we could move water and transform the deserts, as we did in the sure. uh, western United States and Israel and other places. But I'm not aware of any actual modification. There's just a, if you look at the content, there's many different climates across the continent, yes. from arid to semi-vegetation uh, to dense vegetation, and they all are different. And if we had a more scientific way, a thoughtful way of investing in infrastructure, we could take water from one part and help out the other part, such as transaqua wood. Mm -hmm. Did you... Do you think the desalinization plants on the, you know, on the oceans, a lot of ocean there, could help? And is it sure. is it a viable thing to look at? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the Arab countries are already doing that. Are they? they have big, and I think the, I think the Sudanese may have one uh, desalination plant, but again, uh, it's perfectly legitimate to do that. And what is the best form of energy to do that? It's nuclear. The heat from nuclear energy is a natural process to remove the salt through evaporation. So desalination can be moved at the um, Russians, and I think the Indians may be in the forefront of building floating nuclear power plants. Wow. They've already built them. We put them on a barge, and you can float it into a power grid of a country. There's also what's, there's smaller nuclear power plants, two to 400 megawatts, called SMRs, uh, for modular reactors, and they are also can be used efficiently uh, as opposed to some of the larger ones, a thousand gigawatts, which take more work. So there's lots of potential to get energy and to use energy on the African continent. About 17 countries are involved in looking at nuclear energy, hmm. either uh, feasibility studies, contracts, uh, uh, offers from the International Atomic Energy Agency. So there is a, a, a nascent movement for nuclear energy, but uh, we have to really scale it up. And again, the West is doing nothing. It's all China, Russia, India, Japan, etc. Well, it's pretty smart on their part, right? I mean, it's, it's going to give them a relationship and be able to buy and sell this good stuff that they want. You know, why not? Yeah, you you would you would think that, that we would figure that out. If you have a population which is going to be over two billion, and that standard of living is increasing, so there is an increase not just for consumer goods. There's an increase for industrial goods, advanced industrial goods, technology. So we could be producing that in the West. We can be involved in a higher level of trade and commerce, so that everybody benefits from a rising standard of living in Africa. But these people are a combination of stupid and evil. They don't want to see a rising population in Africa. They and therefore, they're actually hurting our own economy and endangering our economy. Because if you have hundreds of millions of young people unemployed, terrorism will increase, I guarantee you. Yes. It appears that they don't want the United States to, to do anything. I mean... They want to turn us into a third world country, don't they, these people? It looks like it. Well, they're, they're succeeding on some levels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our infrastructure in the United States is horrible, and this infrastructure bill is not going to reverse that at all. I mean, we're, we, we have no 
rail service outside the East Coast, which is the minimal, we have no rail service. Everybody has to drive. Everybody's forced to drive. We don't have a transportation. Even Europe has a rail transportation system. So this is, we, don't have, we have like 10 miles of, of track somewhere in the Massachusetts area that can be called high-speed rail, which is 150 miles an hour. That's it. That's high-speed rail. Now, China has 30,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, more than the whole world put together. Plus, they've, they're putting in more and more magnetic levitation trains, yeah. which have no wheels, so there's no friction. They operate on magnetic fields. And these travel 300 miles an hour and are now trying to gear them up to 600 miles an hour. Now, imagine if we had that in the United States. So instead of flying to Chicago, which takes you numerous hours at the airport on both sides, you could take a train to Chicago and be there in a few hours. These things are, that's real too. They, 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 oh, man, yeah. I've talked to people on them. It works. It works. Everybody loves them. And there's no shaking. They take the turn so smooth. One of my friends said you could hold a cup of coffee and it won't spill on a sharp turn. Is that right? Uh, 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 Lawrence Freeman is with us. His website is, let me show you where that is. You can check him out. It is Lawrence Freeman Africa. Uh, let's see, see if I can read that. Lawrence Freeman Africa uh, and the world.com. Yeah, Africa and, and the world.com. So this COP27, to wrap up with this, um, this is really about convincing the African people to do this whole Green New Deal thing deal thing because global warming. So when they come back, you know, all wind up with martinis and whatever, you think they're going to convince the African nations and leaders to do this? They're going to try? Well, we, know, we know a lot, a number of them already have indicated they're not going to be convinced. Oh, they're not going to do they're it. Gonna, well, uh, uh, Uganda, South Africa, Nigeria, among a few, they're not going to buy this. Now, whether that I doubt if they'll stand up to them publicly because they gain nothing from them. I can, but they're, they have governments to deal with. Whether they're going to do that, I doubt it. However, they're also going to look for concessions, and they might be manipulated by these concessions. But frankly, I don't think it's going to work because the West is offering nothing in return. I mean, the fact that for five years they've been promising $100 billion and they haven't been able to deliver it, they don't have a good track record. And the conference is also to whip up uh, our own po populations in Europe, the United States, to go along with this. But in Africa, uh, you know, as one, one of these leaders said, uh, I think it was uh, Montash said from South Africa, he said, you're talking about us dying from global warming in the future. We're dying from lack of energy today. Mm -hmm. And I can just, the lack of energy right now, as you and I are talking, is killing Africans. Every day, not figuratively, literally. So this is, for them, life and death. This is not in the future about whether uh, the warmth goes up a half a degree, if it goes up. This is about right now dying. And there's a whole reports that have been done that show that climate mitigation and adaptation are very effective. That is, you can decrease substantially, and we have in the West, the number of people who die from extreme heat, from hurricanes, from uh, other forms of extreme weather, has decreased massively, 90% in the West in the last century because of 
economic growth and infrastructure. A, a wealthy person can withstand an extreme weather event much better much, than a poor person. Sure. A person who has a house can withstand it better than a hut. So there is actually a whole area where we could go into robust economic development, which would actually prevent the number of deaths from extreme events, because extreme weather events have been happening for four and a half billion years of our planet. They're not going to go away. And the fact our planet, as I wrote in my article, is constantly undergoing climate change. Always. Always. Here's an email from Jerry. Jerry's in Tennessee. Um, I've read articles over the years that there are places in Africa that have refused the Bill Gates injections and they believe that they were killing people. Is that true? That, I, I don't know. Okay. I can't say. Uh, what, I know Bill Gates has a huge operation in Africa. It doesn't really promote infrastructure. It kind of focuses on micro-infrastructure, which is not going to work. And I know he's very big in the medical field, but I have no evidence either way. What, what, he's, what he's up to. Uh, here's another one from Eli. Well, what currencies are they using in Africa? Does each country have their own? Yes. Uh, what you have is, yes, except for the fr- 14 Francophone countries, which is still, believe it or not, this will be another shocker <laughs> for you, it's still under French domination. Fra- 14 no, countries. Frank, 14 of these countries of the 54 are still run by the French? The financial system is, and they have something called the CFA, which is the African French franc. Hmm. And they have to, their money is still deposited in banks in Paris and distributed back to them. That's crazy. So this, is big, this is a big scandal. So they, they all have the same currency. It's called the CIFA. Uh-huh. Everybody else has their own currency. Ghana has the SEBI, uh, Nigeria has the Naira. Uh, Zimbabwe has what's called the Zimbabwe dollar. So they all have their own uh, currency. The Kenya, uh, Kenya has a shilling. And none of these currencies are tradable in any other African country. Oh, they, they, they don't interact. If you have a, you've got to have the one in the country to buy something, really. Right. And you can't really buy anything outside the country. Let's no. say you're going to, if you're going to import tractors for production. Right. You have to have an international currency. So you have to have a euro, a dollar, a yen, yes, sir. et cetera. But even inside the country. So I, I was in Mali. I left with a whole bunch of SIFAs. <laughs> and I, I couldn't do anything with them. So my, a friend of mine in Nigeria who trades with one of these francophone countries bought them from me. Otherwise, I would just have them. I have soon these pounds in my... Um, I have SIFAs uh, from Cote d'Ivoire, I was... You can't do anything with them. I have a hundred trillion dollars Zimbabwe in my desk drawer. Hundred trillion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yes, I really. Yeah. It's like what? <laughs> I you must have. Were you in Zimbabwe? Or get it from a friend. No, we got it. We bought it. Well, there was a thing years ago that people were uh, running yes. with the idea that the Zim was going to re- increase in value. So some of us right. crazies bought some Zim because we thought, well, that's not going to happen, you know. Right. No, the, the, the Zim is uh, much <laughs> high to the You have the Rand in uh, South Africa is probably one of the stronger currencies in it, subject to devaluation. The Naira, for example, you want to understand politics. In 1980s, when the current president, Mamadou Bahari, was then the military, alleged mil- military dictator, military administrator of the country, the Naira was worth 
$1.34. Wow. But because of economic devaluation by the Structural Adjustment Program and this kind of control, we've talked about neo-colonialism through the banking system, now it's 400 naira to the dollar. 400, wow. So it's like, what, two, what is that, 2.5 cents each naira? So you get, you get to see the problem. Yeah, so none of these currencies are pegged to the dollar. It's just an internal thing that they figure out and I guess it just goes along with how many they print to what the value is, kind of. And based on the state of their economy, right. the world market will push for devaluation. Uh, the, um, the Ethiopians have what's called the bear, B-I-R-R, and it's been massively devalued, even though there's been significant economic growth in Ethiopia. So well, yeah, all these countries are, they're all sub, because... And this is the, the neocolonialism part. Once they took the military troops out in the 1960s, they controlled through international financial control. Right. And the French have it directly, and then but everybody is subject to the IMF World Bank diktats, which are actually contrary to what Franklin Roosevelt intended when he created the Brent Woods, because the World Bank used to be known as the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And that's what he intended the bank to be for. He intended the bank to be a financial institution to lend credit for a developing sector. That's in the documents of the But that, that left long ago, that idea, right? Yeah, that left as soon as he died. I don't understand. I mean, I really understand the monetary system. I studied it for years, but I don't understand how the IMF this magically gets to have all of this control and power. They're just a corporation that people just believe it. I mean, what are you going to do with these people? I just, I don't, you know. You have to set up, well, you'd have to set up a dual, an alternative. Yeah. Something like the BRICS. The BRICS. What they're doing, is, right. Yeah, Yeah. the BRICS is expanding. Tell Brazil, folks what Russia. the BRICS is about, because it's pretty fascinating what's going on with China, Russia, and these yeah, people. Many, like, uh, many years ago, a long time ago, over a decade ago, they set up the Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, and set up the agreement. South America, too. Well, Brazil. Now, there was this oh, country. Brazil. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. They have five countries, and they've now had many meetings. They have their own uh, fund of money. Uh, and they've now invited, the last meeting this year, they invited about seven or eight other countries to join, not become members, become part of the discussion process. Hmm. And, for example, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia was there and others. Oh. So there's a potential that the BRICS could expand to become an alternative to the IMF World Bank. And to the dollar as well. They could have... Right. Yeah. And there is, you know, now the Chinese currency is now becoming much more tradable yes, sir. In, in African countries. Nigeria, for example, they do some trading between Naira and the uh, yuan. yuan. Uh, so there is some spreading of the currency, and then there is a discussion of a new international currency to replace the dollar and the euro. Well, that, yeah, I would think the BRICS would really like to have their own little right reserve yeah. currency. And they got a lot of juice now, don't they? I mean, Iran wants to come on board, and they're all trading. You know, and even the days of Bretton Woods is gone now. Remember back when they used to invade you if you wouldn't sell your oil for dollars? Now everybody's doing it. <laughs> it's, it's a yeah, wild I mean, west now. Yeah, 
I mean, the BRICS is, look, it's all developing countries. Brazil, large population, huge population, developing country. Russia is more advanced, small population. India, large population. China, large population. South Africa. So those countries are all underdeveloped countries. And they represent, if you add them up, more than half the world's population. Mm -hmm. Because you have Russia, uh, you have China and India, or half the world's population. So there is, uh, it's a viable way of getting around the IMF and World Bank if it continues to grow. Mm. You know, all politicians are control freaks, as you know, and they're crazy, but maybe Putin and these people are just a little bit less crazy than some of the other ones. I don't know. Well, you know? I, I think I, I think that they, there is, as I said earlier, there is increasing evidence and movement away from this rules-based international rules-based right. and that, even though it's very messy and dangerous, is can potentially be something positive. No. Wouldn't that be something if it turns out that Russia and China actually uh, could be the buffer against the Klaus Schwab World Economic Forum UN people? I mean, that's an interesting Mm -hmm. scenario, isn't it? Yeah. And and in some ways... It is. I mean, China is. I don't know what Biden's going to say to Xi, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it does matter, but the Chinese are not going to change the course of action from the United States. And in fact, if you, and again, I mean, which, which shows me how, how much our culture has devolved. Uh, as I said, I'm going on 72, so I'm technically a baby boomer. And I, I've seen the culture around me of the baby boomers, and their, their brains have become more malleable yes, sir. every year. So that there's no thinking. There's no understanding of the physical universe going on. So our culture is declining. Our thinking is, is declining. And the Chinese are not going to sit around and try to convince the U.S. They're going to go ahead with development. Now, there's no paradigm, there's no example in economic history of any country lifting 700 to 800 people out of poverty in 40 years. So the Chinese did it. So now you say, okay, well, they have this one-party system and it's communist, okay, fine. But shouldn't you want to find out how they did it? Maybe we could learn something. And that's the, the Africans are saying, look, we have uh, almost 450 million people, 500 people in poverty. So China lifted more people out of poverty than we have in poverty. So that is something we can learn. But the West is uninterested. All you get is the narrative that, and now in the Biden administration, and it wasn't much different under Trump, but Biden has said explicitly, China is our number one enemy. And therefore, why would a advanced sector country make the second largest economy in the world their number one in? Yeah. This is the real depravity of the Western thinking right now, the rules-based order. When I was in grade school in the 50s, I was told that Russia was the number one enemy and they could blow us up at any minute, and we would hide under our desk, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, they haven't stopped this this whole narrative for 70 years, 60 years. Come yeah, on. I remember getting under my desk tonight <laughs> in elementary school. <laughs> sure, whatever. Well, you're uh, really a pleasure to talk to. So why don't you go visit uh, Mr. Freeman at his place, and it's called Lawrence Freeman Africa and the com. He's a political analyst and a writer, and... Uh, um, 
It's really been interesting talking to you, uh, kind of keeping eye. Have you been ke- kind of keeping tabs on what's going on this COP27 thing? Is there anything going to go on of interest other than people going to walk away saying you guys are crazy? Well, what I read this morning from one of the African news outlets was uh, they're now upping their, they're now talking about giving the developing sector $1.6 trillion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to do what they say, what they do, what they say, right? Yeah, so it's now, last week it was a trillion, now it's up to 1.6 trillion. So who knows what it'll be by the, the conference ends on the 18th, so what is that? That's uh, Friday. Hey, these are nations are all bankrupt. Where are they going to get the 1.6? Just print it up? What? You well, know. they haven't been able to get the 100 billion through donations. They wanted to get it through donations, but it didn't happen. So I don't know where they're going to get the trillion from, much less the 1.6 trillion. And I mean, I, I don't know who's what's in Senator Kerry's coffee that he keeps coming around with. His <laughs> but uh, he's some, there's something in the water in the Western world that's not I, making people. I know it's just and you know, even I, you know, you know, all politics is is theater, as you know. If I had to pick one, I'd be a libertarian. But just this 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 election that went on with many so many people. Again, you know, they're all crazy, but. So many people bought into this whole Green New Deal, transhumanism, uh, open borders. They bought into it. I mean, th- this whole conservative wave didn't happen. Just didn't happen. Well, but even the conservative wave wasn't valuable to me. I'm looking for ideas. Yeah, or people to see, want to kick these people out, right? It's not there. I, I don't, but I don't see any ideas coming from the Republican no, Party. they don't have any ideas. establish yeah. a better future yeah. for the nation and the world. Yeah. And that's what I look for. I'm looking for ideas. ideas. Yeah. And look, the Republicans, how does any look, think about how people campaign. Even we go back to the debates between John F. Kennedy and Nixon in 1960. I remember that. There was an attempt to have a discussion, much less you go back to the Civil War period, where on the floor of the Senate, you had people giving lectures for four hours for and against slavery. Yes, sir. Now it's three words, five words slogans, hmm. staccato sentences, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's, they, they try to reduce the wording to the smallest possible time so the person is not challenged to think. Pro-abortion, yes. anti-abortion, yeah. pro-this, anti-pro, anti-pro, anti. And it's all designed as part of a method to prevent people from thinking. And until that changes, the American population is getting dumbed down. There's no question about it. So do you think uh, the main culture is going to have to go through some terrible kind of wake-up calls before they wake up and smell the coffee? It feels like that, doesn't it, Mr. Uh, Freeman? Yeah. It feels well, like I that. Remember, <laughs> it feels like uh, that. So I was, I was going to college in the late 1960s, uh-huh. and I remember when the counterculture was brought in, so all of a sudden, I remember Earth Day, the first Earth Day, was uh, I walked outside my dorm and all these kids were sitting on the ground in the lotus position looking <laughs> up at the sun. So I knew something was up. So that was the counterculture. Now that has become the dominant culture. So I was hanging out with some young people. Uh, I'm a long distance hiker, a backpacker. Oh, yeah. I go weeks and hundreds of miles into the woods and Camp out, and I was going up and down the Appalachian Trail and talking to some young people, and I was telling them what I think. And so they said, "Oh, so you're the counterculture?" I said, "No, I'm the counter counterculture. <laughs> I want to get rid of the current culture and go back to something more sane." And even then, it wasn't great, but at least there was a pretense 
are a semblance of discussing ideas. Mm -hmm. There's no discussion of ideas. I mean, it's I listen in the radio to the debates in Washington because I want to know how people think, mm -hmm. and it's appalling yeah. what they what they say and what they don't say. And so I I agree with you. The crisis continues. If it deepens, it has the potential to crack apart yeah. and go back to something. And look, we did it before. What was the Renaissance of the 1400s? Mm. Golden Renaissance of Italy. Renaissance, it was the rebirth of the ideas of the Greeks from a thousand years earlier. And they went back to Plato and Socrates and Solon. And we're going to have to do that. Real thinkers. Yeah. And even our founding fathers. Well, yeah, look what they went through on the, on the, on the, when they argued about uh, nationalism, or what was it, federalism or nationalism, right? How many people have read the Federalist Papers? I have. They're brilliant. Right. And I had to use a dictionary to find some of the words. Those papers Whoa. established the basis of our nation. How many people have read that? And they were being printed in a local paper of the day, the New York Times of the day. Wow. So that the American citizens can make a rational, reasoned decision about the future of our nation. Yeah. Do they want Washington in control or the states in control, you know? And, uh, no, so this is the problem. So we got, yeah, we're going to have to, unfortunately, I think the crisis will get worse before it gets better. But there is the potential, and then we all, as a, as human beings, we have to always believe in the potential of a better future, and we have to do everything we can to bring it about, and that's what I've been trying to do. Well, you've certainly been doing some good job about. Finally, are there people in Africa of your intelligence and passion about all of this working on this? I mean, are there are there is there is there a movement of people or organizations and stuff like that? There are. There are individuals, uh, I have a circle of people in the United States and on the continent. There are individuals who understand what I'm saying and want to push in this direction. They don't have the, they have not gone into in depth the full level of what they need to and to fully understand the historical perspective on how these mm -hmm. policies can come about. But I've built up a what I would call since I consider myself a student of Alexander Hamilton, I now have a bunch of Hamiltonians <laughs> around me. Uh, young people, some people in the 40s, 50s, some older in the 60s, some Africans, some non-Africans. And so there is a circle. It's unfortunately it's not large enough to change policy, but it, at least we have a discussion going on in these ideas. Yeah, well, a couple billion people at stake, two and a half billion people, right? And if these people get their way, you know, these these elites, uh, they want to kill most of them, don't they? They just want to kill them. <laughs> well, they've, they've stated it openly yeah. in various ways. It's just, uh, from their standpoint, they would say, quote, there's too many damn black people in Africa. We got to get rid of them. Okay, oh, it's a quick email, and this is a good thing. I'm glad they brought it up. Uh, from Jesse, why can't they grow more food in Africa? Certainly they could figure out a way. Well, well, think about this. Africa has the largest amount of unused but arable land on the planet. Wow. The really? land they have, they have several problems. One is because of lack of energy and infrastructure, they don't use irrigation. So they have a tiny percentage. So they have a very small percentage of land that they've cultivated, let's say in, in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 
maybe they've used five to seven percent of the land and then they have a fraction of that they use irrigation now they're granting irrigation in ethiopia hmm. so you need the uh, mechanization farming to produce higher yields you have to have infrastructure you have to have water so you have to move water to place so you have to have energy to move the water you lose in some places 40 percent of your food rots because you don't have regular railroads picking up the food and you don't have refrigerated railroad cars mm-hmm. think about that yeah. all these little things that we take for granted now in the 1960s and 70s, when African country populations were small and they were first independent, many of them were close to food self-sufficiency. Now, none of them are. And we have, they're importing $35 billion of food, which is a waste of $35 billion of their reserves, because carrying out World Bank structural adjustment program policies, they've made themselves more inefficient in agriculture. But my my view of the matter, and this may shock some people, it shouldn't, is not only can Africa feed itself, but it can become a net food exporter. If they could, that's how they got that's enough how land to do that if they get creative. And the land, I've been all over it. The land is so fertile. Wow. And there's so much of it. Wow. wow. That they could become a net food exporter and end hunger in Africa. Yeah, boy, what a thing that would be we've had some people argue and i've seen some videos where they're actually putting these heavy hoofed animals down there in places and they break up the soil you know these real oxen you. you know right they break up the soil and and actually things start to grow and they they creates rain it's pretty cool i mean well i tell you one thing that shocked me when i started going to africa in 1990 is seeing old plows pulled by oxen yeah in some cases, an old man bent over with a hoe, just chopping in the ground to loosen it up. Yeah. My heart, I, I, I was so shocked and so sad to see human beings being treated this way. Yeah. So, I mean, why, why would you want to have that when you can have energy through a tractor, break up your land and put in your seeds? Sure. So it's very sad. But it doesn't have to be that way. And they've got all the gas and oil and whatever they need, right? They get it all down there. I mean, all these countries wouldn't be even interested from day one if Africa is not just loaded with the good stuff in the ground. Gold, silver. Well, look at the gold mines. I mean, yeah. Yep. You got it. And they and they could keep in mind, you know, and they could they could do their own currency because they could use all of these resources as backing. It wouldn't have to be exchangeable like gold a gold back currency, but it could be a resource back currency, couldn't it? That's you know, that's the idea that you could sure. right now the currencies are not accepted outside yeah. of the country. Right. Yeah. So you'd have to collateralize, as you're saying, a mm-hmm. currency and put it on an international trading basis. Yeah. And it would have to be close to the dollar, you know, something one to one or something. Well you have to establish some relation with dollar. I mean and there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't, I don't even have a problem with the gold-backed currency that you establish some relationship to a fixed commodity. Sure. You want a fixed relationship so that you uh, prevent spec- wild, wild speculation. So if you buy something one day, you want to know it has the same value a year from now. So I don't have a problem with that. But yeah, right now their currencies cannot even be used outside their own country. And this has been the argument for since they took the dollar off the gold standard, 71, Yep. And what they argued, and the gold people have been arguing, and look what's happening today. No, nobody, you know, what 
inflation is probably 15%. They say 7 or 8. I say it's 15. And this dollar that we earned uh, five years ago, it's lost 15% of its value. I mean, that's real. That's real, man. Yep. And that, look what's happened in Europe. As bad as the dollar is, the look, euro has collapsed even faster. I know. Yeah. Well, the dollar, as you know, is the strongest <laughs> currency on the planet right now. That's go yeah. figure that right, and all the other ones are dropping. All the other ones are dropping because of it. It's yeah. cra- it's crazy land out there in the world, boy. I tell you. No, what. that's because people think that it's like these day traders in Wall Street. If they can increase the value on their computer, what they think they sold that day, the right. profit they made, they think they're wealthy. But that's not wealth. Wealth is the ability to have inputs into your economy that raise the productivity of population to improve the standard of living from one generation to the next. That's wealth. Yes. Hmm. So what do you, what are the improvements you have to make? What are the injections into your physical economy? What's the new technology? What's the tech, what's the infrastructure platform required? What's the, what's the new machine tool you should have be having that increases the productivity? because you measure it by the improved standard of living from one generation to the next. Now, what does that have to do with the day trader thinking he made a million dollars in the last two hours? (laughs) Yeah. Did you see that FTX thing and they lost how many billions billions of dollars? It was all just made up. It was all just made up. (laughs) Just made up. All right, so we got to go. Thank you for staying so long with it. Really been a pleasure. Lawrence Friedman, it's Lawrence Friedman. Uh, Africa and the world dot com. Got it. Thank you very much, now, and I look forward to our future discussion. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, thank you. It's been an honor. Take care of yourself. Bye. Oh, what a cool guy, huh? Boy, I tell you, I mean, isn't it fun to learn about really what's going on in the world? And and uh, you probably won't hear see this interview on CNN anytime soon. Nope, not going to happen. Okay, we <laughs> no, not going to happen. We are going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk about the universe with a. Uh, a fellow who's into the planets and the electrical energy and going on. Um, he's not a flat earther by any stretch, but he's a, I don't know what exactly it is, but it's, we're going to figure out uh, what he's about, and you're going to hear from him, and it's going to be in just a few minutes. We're scheduled to go at noon. So that, wow. His name is Michael Claridge. He's a PhD, astrophysicist, and lead scientist of Sapphire, Stars, Planet, and connected systems. That sounds fun. So we'll dig into that in about uh, 13 minutes. Let me go take a break here and uh, I'm going to see you in 15 minutes. So stay right there. Uh, this is Patrick Timpone. Uh, remember, we are doing um, a lot of good things on our website. Look at all of our products. That's how we support ourselves. I know that many of you are having a much harder time uh, with your food bills and everything else these days and I get that and I understand it um, but if you have some excess dollars that you want to spend on your health and well-being uh, we have some really wonderful products on oneradionetwork.com so give us a thought and look at them and see what you can see if you want any information on what we promote here just email me patrick oneradionetwork.com also, a uh, quick plug here. I'm doing a little thing called Patrick in Your Pocket, that, uh, and I've done uh, about a handful of them already, and people uh, really like it. And it is just a one-on-one coaching session on video, 
and then unlimited email support, and we can talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. I'm a very good listener. I am um, well-versed in the aspects of how the mind works, spiritual things. Um, I'm not going to try to sell you on a certain kind of diet, but we can, or anything like that, we can talk about whatever it is that you're kind of feeling stuck with. If you're just feeling stuck with something, uh, people have really enjoyed it. We've got some testimonials already. Um, just an hour thing and then unlimited email support. You can go on our website, Patrick in Your Pocket, click on it, and then it'll, it'll give you more information on on uh, one, one cost thing. It's low. And then, uh, um, you know, relationships, uh, uh, procrastination, you know, I can help you to get rid of fear forever if you uh, if you want. We can dig into that. You do that one, and at the end of the day, end of the deal, you get rid of for once and for all, ever, the fear of death. You get over that one if you want to go there. That's a biggie. You, you really ditch that one, and boy, your life will change immediately if you really get through it. And it's easy to do because it's all just a fear. But anyway, so email me, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Okay, we'll see you now 11 minutes away from our astrophysicist. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.